I looked below me where the earth was silent in a sick green light and saw the hills look up afraid and the grasses on the hills and all the animals and everywhere about me were the cries of frightened birds and sounds of fleeing wings. I was the chief of all the heavens riding there and when I looked behind me all the twelve black horses reared and plunged and thundered and their manes and tails were whirling hail and their nostrils snorted lightning. And when I looked below again, I saw the slant hail falling and the long, sharp rain. And where we passed, the trees bowed low and the hills were dim. Now the earth was bright again as we rode. I could see the hills and valleys and the creeks and rivers passing under. We came above a place where three streams made a big one. A source of mighty waters and something terrible was there. Flames were rising from the waters and in the flames a blue man lived. The dust was floating all about him in the air. The grass was short and withered. The trees were wilting. Two-legged and four-legged beings lay there, thin and panting, and wings too weak to fly. Then the black horse riders shouted, Hokahe, and charged down upon the blue man, but were driven back. And the white troop shouted, charging, and was beaten. Then the red troop and the yellow. And when each had failed, they all cried together, Eagle wing stretches, hurry! And all the world was filled with voices of all kinds that cheered me, so I charged. I had the cup of water in one hand, and in the other was the bow that turned into a spear as the bay and I swooped down, and the spear's head was sharp lightning. It stabbed the blue man's heart, and as it struck, I could hear the thunder rolling and many voices that cried, Unheed, meaning I had killed. The flames died, the trees and grasses were not withered anymore, and murmured happily together and every living being cried in gladness with whatever voice it had. Then the four troops of horsemen charged down and struck the dead body of the blue man, counting coup. And suddenly it was only a harmless turtle. You see, I had been riding with the storm clouds and had come to earth as rain, and it was drought that I had killed with the power that the six grandfathers gave me. Greetings, friends. I'm Arnold Schroeder. Back from the dead, yet again. And this right here, well, this is Fight Like an Animal. If you want episode bibliographies, excerpts from my forthcoming book, which cover a great deal of the same material we discuss on this podcast, and my contact information, please check out againsttheinternet.com. And if you want to support the continued obsessive journey of this podcast, please find me at patreon.com slash biological singularity, where you can get a fictional version of this podcast, Fight Like an Animal 2050, for as little as a dollar a month. So, it's June 25th, the anniversary of the killing of Custer. And my contention is that there's a whole lot of guys kind of like Custer out there who need a whole lot of killing just about now. So what better time to record this episode about Standing Rock that I've been assuming I would do at some point, sooner or later, since I started making this podcast, um, you know, with the the one significant countervailing argument to what better time being that this is not going to be the most stellar performance I've ever given. And, you know, this is a, this is the perpetual fight like an animal dynamic. It always happens when I think I'm just like on top of episode, you know, it's like I've climbed the episode mountain. It's always when I think that I just have so much material prepared 
that I could release at like, you know, where, where I'm getting to the point where I'm just deliberately spacing it out. And I feel like I could record an, you know, like I could release an almost arbitrary amount of stuff and then something happens, some catastrophe or another, or maybe we really shouldn't call this a catastrophe, but you know, some, some event or another or psychological process or fucking whatever intervenes and suddenly there's a long interregnum between episodes. In this case, it's because I got a kidney transplant to my great surprise. And so I have been through a lot of medical suffering in my life. Uh, I have really known like some deep, deep pain. This has been the hardest thing I've ever gone through physically for a variety of reasons that I don't feel are like... They're kind of they're, they're kind of funny. I could make like a stand-up bit out of it or something, but I don't really need to relate any of them for our purposes here today. But uh, I'm uh, I guess I guess I guess two weeks out from a kidney transplant. The kidney, you know, they, they oftentimes take a little while to wake up. Mine is kicking in. Uh, the things do look good. Things look really good, but um, just the the recovery from surgery itself. And all the crazy drugs they give you, all the steroids. I have never been in so much pain, um, I, a physical pain in any case. Um, and so I'm just going to, you know, it's, it's one of those things, like I feel like I'm somebody who really does understand that sometimes you have to bend with the wind or it'll break you. And th this is just one of those things, I'm going to do this episode without trying to pretend like I'm any more together than I am. My voice sounds different than it usually does. I, you know, I'm sometimes still like so kind of breathless from, I don't know, some combination of pain and like massive doses of steroids that uh, it's, it's like honestly pretty hard for me to enunciate correctly. But uh, I just, I feel like, I feel like it's time, both in the sense that it's just really been a while since I've put something out and I want to give people material. And also because uh, June 24th was the day that Roe versus Wade was overturned, and we all knew that was coming. And um, I don't know, I don't have any explicit predictions about what this summer will be like or how this will all play out, but I do kind of feel like a lot of people who, to my infinite, endless, agonizing frustration, have managed, been managing to, up to this point to convince themselves that there's some mechanism within the existing system to, uh, to radically change the course that this society is on, are really finally starting to understand that there's not and that there's exactly one option and that is an outright revolution. And so I want to present, I guess, I guess I'm calling it eight strategic theses, uh, that, you know, some of them certainly I had, you know, developed before Standing Rock that I'm using Standing Rock to illustrate them. Some of them I, I directly inferred from my, my time there. And um, I guess I think that they have broad applicability to 
a revolutionary effort. So as much as some of what I will talk about today is targeted pretty specifically towards resource extraction fights and indeed towards, you know, like pipeline construction fights in particular, uh, this is something that I've always done some of, you know, I, I have developed training modules and, and written articles and zines and stuff on blockading trains safely, on shutting down oil pipelines safely. And I guess, you know, like to some extent, this is my like, this is what pipeline construction looks like. And here are some like logistical and strategic con uh, considerations for fighting it episode. But a lot of it is like a, a much more broad, revolutionary sort of theoretical assessment. And um, I hope that people find it, uh, kind of, you know, kind of interesting. I keep thinking about how it's really hard. So, so to give a concrete example, uh, Abby Martin, if you know who that is, uh, a media commentator, I consider very gifted, not a critique of her, you know, but she released this great, you know, like it really was a great like four minute video or something um, talking about the need to abolish the Supreme Court and write a new constitution. But, you know, once again, on some level, that's actually sort of like saying we need to vote the right people into office in the existing system or something. There's exactly one way that, you know, the power structure is never going to do that. It's never going to abolish the Supreme Court or, or write a new constitution. The precisely singular mechanism that exists for living under a different system is a, a revolution, is for those who are currently imposing laws under the existing framework to no longer have the capacity to impose those laws by force, right? And so... If we think about this, is also gets a lot into uh, what I've been writing about recently. I have managed to work on my book a little bit in the post-surgery period. And, um, you know, I'm talking about trying to define revolution really like as concretely as possible. So we, you know, so that we can like really say here is the like explicit strategic sort of goal like this is, you know, because like, what is it? Is it like... Is it when we finally like take the White House and burn it down? To me, that's the thinking of the imperialist war machine we live under right now. That's always the mistake they make, right? They invade somewhere like Afghanistan or Iraq and they think, oh, well, if we like take the capital and kill the guy in charge or whatever, then it's over and we won, you know, and it's not because there's still all these people who are, you know, unwilling to accept th their presence who are going to fight. And so, you know, the, the way that I, the way I've been trying to define revolution kind of like really specifically in like, not in abstract political terms, but in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of biology and dominance, hierarchies, social structures, and, I guess, like, I would say the revolution has arrived when there's a symmetry of aggression at work in our social structure, right? So right now there's a very limited number of people who have license to use aggression and violence against all the rest of us. 
And that's how the laws of this land are imposed. I mean, they can keep the fucking White House. They can keep the Supreme Court. You know, some doddering old fool like Joe Biden can, um, can sit up in that motherfucker for all of eternity, for all I care. And they can proclaim whatever the fuck they want. They can claim to administer the United States of America or the whole damn globe for all I care. The point is, is it enforceable, right? And, um, and so I think that a revolution has arrived when we get to make decisions about our lives. And uh, if people try to stop us, there's a reciprocity of aggressive potential. And that, to some extent, might imply, it doesn't imply a more violent world, but it implies a more distributed capacity for violence, right? And ultimately, in the long term, that should hopefully imply an actually less violent world. It's such a, a ubiquitous misunderstanding that, you know, if you just sort of let the capacity for violence be concentrated in the hands of just a, you know, a tiny group of people like the fucking cops, that the world is somehow less violent. But that's not really, that's the idea of an egalitarian society is one in which there are, uh, you know, shifting uh, capacity for like shifting coalitions of arbitrary size to exert force to prevent other people from exerting force uh, to impose some system or some, you know, some coercive strategy on them. And so, um, you know, a revolution looks like a symmetry of aggression, which means that the people who are currently using violence in our society would know that there's actually maybe some fucking consequences for doing so. And ultimately, hopefully, ideally, that means there's actually less violence, right? Or as uh, the famous the famous swordsman um, Miyamoto Musashi said, I think that's how you pronounce it, the guy who also has the famous go into battle as though you are already dead quote, uh, the ultimate purpose of mastering a martial art is to not have to use it, right? You know, right now we don't have much of a capacity for violence, and it makes the world more violent. Um, so that's, you know, that's my premise. That's been my lifelong premise organizing, even though I've done, you know, even though what I've actually done doesn't involve any, any violence, um, you know, it's all been like fucking locking people to the gates of refineries and blockading fucking trains and all that good stuff. Um, but that's because I don't find, I don't find two things. I don't find a political program. You know, there's always this tension in revolutionary efforts. It's, it's one thing to burn down the existing order, but there's like this very precarious, narrow passage that you have to get through where you have to have enough of a new social order to assert in its place, like already kind of gathering momentum so that it mean so that the violence means anything. And also I just don't find cadre that are like, yes, it's time to, you know, take it all the way there. And so my premise has always been that I'm organizing direct action kind of stuff, you know. Uh, on the hopes of it being part of an evolutionary trajectory that eventually leads to revolution. 
And the time for as much as, you know, I've had a number of pretty great adventures and on a more kind of like chronic, you know, like a long-term scale, the 90s felt like a time of more generalized militant possibility. Standing Rock was when that logic went the furthest that I had ever seen it, where, you know, tactics like locking down to bulldozers and stuff like that evolved to such a point where it really started to feel like we were in some precursor stages to a revolution. So my rule with this has always been that, you know, it's, it's okay to do some stuff, like lock some people to some fucking shit or whatever, that on its own is utterly insufficient to affect the kind of revolutionary change that's necessary uh, as long as it's part of a process whereby things are always getting more challenging. The, you know, like I, I have this notion of this idea of a, a like risk and difficulty optimum. So, you know, you, you have to start by doing something that feels uncomfortable and then kind of every step along the way, you, you know, you'll acclimate very quickly to whatever sort of uh, mode you adopt. And every step along the way, essentially, has to involve some kind of, you know, there is such a thing as too much. Like, it's not, they've got us punked pretty hard, you know, between the actual repression but then also giving us like Netflix and, you know, whatever. Um, there's, uh, it, it's pretty ridiculous and unreasonable to be like, hey guys, let's just like have a revolutionary war right here and now. So there's, there's a way to take it too far and there's a way not to take it far enough. And then there's a risk and difficulty optimum that lives somewhere in between those where it always feels uncomfortable and you're never quite sure you can pull it off. Um, and so I've always been comfortable employing, you know, like direct action tactics and stuff like that, as long as it felt like that. Um, and so that, I guess I'm going to go ahead and say that's, that's strategic thesis number one, is that our revolutionary efforts should always feel like that. Like to, get, to give a concrete example, um, I spent a lot, a lot of time trying to get people in the Pacific Northwest who were opposed to, uh, you know, new fossil fuel infrastructure construction and the existing apparatus of fossil fuels to blockade trains. It fucking took years. It fucking took years. But it finally got to the point where it felt kind of normalized. And, you know, like I, I wrote a manual and I ran it by somebody who... Uh, who drives trains and they were like, perfect. I actually thought when I read it at first that you were a train engineer. Um, and so I was like, I'm done. I can't, you know, this can't be like a focus anymore. And then moved on to, you know, trying to do the same thing, like consult the technical literature and stuff and figure out when and where and how and under what conditions one can safely shut down oil pipelines. And that was so, oh my God, it was so, it was so much harder, you know, and that's the, that's the risk and difficulty optimum, right? It's just like, once you become acclimated, you, you move to the next crazier thing. Um, 
I don't know if I have a concise name for that. I want to give all these strategic theses, all these strategic theses, like pithy little titles. I, you know, I guess, I guess we'll just call that the the risk and difficulty. You know, like pursue the risk and difficulty optimum. That's that's strategic thesis number one. Um, and so, you know, like I, I advocate outright revolution. I don't come from a very like specific political persuasion. I'm an empiricist, right? I think that literally any existing approach or any kind of like reasonably well codified like political tendency or whatever, one can readily level the accusation at that people have tried it and it doesn't work. I think that we should, you know, and there's this real this is like pure psychology. It has nothing to do with rational strategic deliberation, but people feel this real need to feel like they have the paradigm mapped out for wholesale processes of social transformation at the outset. You know, it's it, people are so prone to arguing about, you know, like whether this particular political tendency or that one is like the right way. And I just don't see how anybody could possibly know. Um, and so, like I said, I'm, a, I'm an empiricist. Like, I think that we should approach these revolutionary processes as processes of experimentation. And, um, you know, we should approach them like scientists. Um, and so, so there's, there's all that. And then just to say a few things quickly about Standing Rock itself and, and what I am and am not in particular trying to do in this episode, um, I'm not trying to tell the story of Standing Rock at all. I'm trying to extract some strategic insights from it. And um, so there's a little bit of a narrowing of focus here. Uh, if you want to know the story of Standing Rock, the, the single thing that I would like absolutely recommend over any other source is the Unicorn Riot documentary, Black Snake Killers. And of course, I'll, I'll put a link in the bibliography but Unicorn Riot, great in general, and they really, they really threw down at Standing Rock. I, I swear, that those guys were probably arrested more than anybody else. You know, they they just insisted on always being like right up in the thick of it to document what was happening, and they did so at very considerable personal discomfort and risk, and so. Uh, it's 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 a really really good narrative about the trajectory of the whole thing, um, and then you know I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna tell like a couple things that try to convey a little bit about what it was sort of like at points, but ultimately I'm not only not really trying to tell the story of Standing Rock, but I'm I'm not even really trying to convey what it was like. I don't I don't know how to tell you what it was like for there to be like Aztec dancers confronting legions of, uh, you know, menacing sci-fi robot looking riot police in a cornfield in fucking North Dakota. I just don't, I don't have, I, I think my powers of articulation are, are like pretty considerable and it is utterly beyond my powers of articulation to convey just sort of like the experiential quality of being at Standing Rock. Um, but in narrowing my focus in such a manner to these sort of like logistical strategic details and, you know, like these strategic theses, um, you know, that, that cover things like 
the actual nature of infrastructure construction projects and the, the, the organizational dynamics. I, I do risk losing something pretty considerable. There's, a, again, a narrow path. I, I navigate attention here because there wouldn't be these things to talk about without the, the upwelling of cultural and spiritual forces that characterized the resistance at Standing Rock, right? And I, I started fighting resource extraction when I was 16 fucking years old. And Standing Rock happened when I was somewhere in my late 30s. And um, it was totally unlike anything I had ever experienced. And it was unlike, it was the only, it was the only time that I didn't feel, I don't know, like, I'm just not even sure how to put it, but it was the only time that things didn't feel like really screamingly inadequate in a way that they kind of always had. And, um, and that is because of, of the, the cultural revival that was happening there and the meaning that that held for the Native people who came there. And that, that being a primary... It's a, uh, a sort of like commonplace for native people resisting infrastructure, uh, resisting, you know, resource extraction projects to say we're not protesting, we're praying. And uh, I think when I first encountered that phraseology, I didn't like totally understand the depths of its significance. I, I feel like I better grasped it there but it wasn't the first time i've like worked on a campaign with native people but you know like i really i really saw the point to some extent that i never had before and um it it just really does raise this question you know it, it made it all the more clear to me that for a people as lost as we all are for a people who are not a people who have no tradition, who have nothing fucking, who have nothing sacred to refer to as a framework for who they are in relation to what's happening in the world and what they're going to do about it. It is so much more difficult to catalyze meaningful resistance. Um, and I, I will talk more about whether there is a way to overcome that and if so what it is at the end but um you know but i do i do just want to acknowledge that th this is very much about like how do you find the staging yard you know where they're transporting the material for the pipeline construction or whatever but there there is something there is something about what happened there that uh, gets really lost in in that constriction of focus, and that's just that's just an an inevitable shortcoming of what I'm doing, and I, I will try to remedy it by offering like one or two actual sort of like anecdotes from my time there, like try to give a little bit of a sense of what it was like. So that said. A lot of the outline for this episode is based on two pieces that I wrote. Um, one not too long after I got back, you know, one is from like spring of 2017. 
and it was uh, something I submitted to something that ran on the website itsgoingdown.org, uh, uh, and that was sort of about the organizational dynamics and the organizational dynamics in moments of uprising in general and the groundwork that we lay in between them, right? Because because that's the life of a revolutionary is you have these moments where you're like, wait, what's possible? Is anything possible? Oh my God, what's happening right now? And, you know, you commit yourself entirely. You find yourself really believing you might be involved in a truly revolutionary process. And then you face the uh, soul-crushing and psychologically very difficult and ultimately very hazardous process of having to try to like de-escalate from that at some point and like you know reintegrate into society at least at the level of like a typical sort of deviant outcast you know like integrate back into society at least at the level of like getting some kind of gig and finding some kind of shelter and you know like um and so I wrote that, and then the other piece I never submitted anywhere. It never got published. I ran it by uh, a number of my peers, you know, for review, and I got really strong praise for it, and I don't know. I just, I just never published it. Um, and that piece was it, written after The Intercept got a hold of all the uh, security contractor documents that they got a hold of from Standing Rock. And so it was kind of an analysis of what the police knew and how they saw, you know, it was like sort of like a piece of like counterintelligence work, as well as presenting some of the strategic theses that I'm presenting here today. Um, and so... I'll, I'll start there, and this is admittedly going to be like a slight detour into vanity, but it, it really does illustrate the point pretty well. Um, you know, so the, the security contractor in question is called Tiger Swan, and the, the, their logo is like a yin-yang with like a tiger and a swan in the respective spaces, um, you know, sort of like my Bruce Lee chimpanzee logo. Um and I feature in the Tiger Swan documents at one point in this very ridiculous way where they, they you know, I mean, it's just, it's so absurd. They describe me as like so central to what's happening. Like so, and you know, I mean, it's like if you asked not just like almost anybody at Standing Rock, but even almost anybody at the Red Warrior camp, which was kind of like, this direct action focused, you know, it's like, it was like a lot of indigenous land defenders and, uh, and anarchists, um, you know, like the direct action click within the broader, the broader like camp. Um, if you asked almost anybody even from those camps, like, you know, like, yeah, you know, that guy Arnold, I mean, I think most people would be like, no. And if you really press some, you know, like some people, They'd be like, oh, yeah, the guy who never took off his stocking cap did a lot of scouting or whatever. I think if you asked, like, a bunch of the, like, anarchist kids and, the, you know, like, the kind of, like, direct action folks, the, the people sort of, like, from my milieu who showed up 
to help at, at Red Warrior, you know, higher proportion of them would, would know who I was or whatever. But um, the, 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 the Tiger Swan documents are like, this guy, super important. And then also, also uh, the sheriff of Morton County, uh, Sheriff Kirkmeyer, um, just developed a fucking obsession with me. The first time I left, I was there for 30 days from sometime in August to sometime in September, the first time I was there. And then I, I had to go back to the Northwest for like a couple weeks. And, uh, you know, Sheriff Kirkmeyer followed us like 150 miles to the state line. And then when I was back the second time, the Bismarck Tribune ran this article where it was like, Sheriff's Department compiles dossiers on the worst of the worst of the protesters. And, you know, like my friend read this and came over at Red Warrior Camp and was like, Hey, homie, like this article's about you. And, and I read it and I was like, okay, it's uncanny. You know, every single thing they're describing does describe me. And it's like, it's like a weird, it's weird that it's a convergence of those specific things. It's like, you know, like the way that the newspaper article phrased it was like, you know, some of these people have been involved in radical environmental movements like Earth First for decades. Some of them are from the Pacific Northwest. Some of them continue to write for publications like the Earth First Journal. Some of them have charges for drug possession, like for heroin and things like that. You know, some of them have gone around conducting trainings and disrupting, you know, and like on and on where I was like, it's weird. You know, I'm not saying it's like, I'm not saying I'm not one of the people, but it, you know, like, come on, it ain't about me. And then... <clears throat> I saw Kirkmeyer in a field shortly before all hell broke loose and like, I don't know, like a hundred and something people got arrested all at once. And he pointed across, you know, from his line to our line and he said, I know who you are. I know what you do. I have a file on you. And at that moment, it really sank in. And I was like, holy shit, that article seriously was just about me, you know. And, um, and so this is like pretty insane because, again, you know, like I think I helped. I think that what I did there was useful. But like what, what, what on earth does this focus mean? And from going through the Tiger Swan documents, um, there's two other people who kind of like stand out in exactly the same way who they're like, oh, this guy, we got to get this guy. This is, you know, like, like literally attributing the whole thing to these couple people. I, and one of them was this like fucking photojournalist named Gary Tomlin, I think, that I don't think even really spent much time at the camps or anything or like really had anything to do with the protests. And then the other one was, um, was this guy, Cody Hall, who was like the official red warrior media spokesperson for a while. Um, in kind of like the first phase of red warrior itself carrying out actions. And so, and so what we all have in common, this is, here's the unifying thread is, is simple visibility. In, in my case, and in the case of Gary Tomlin, the photojournalist, 
through scouting or, well, in my case, scouting, and in his case, just literally going to pipeline construction sites, right? But being somebody who various workers and security guards just saw over and over again at the sites of construction. And then obviously, in Cody Hall's case, it was because he was the guy who talked to the press. And so this is the distorted hall of mirrors through which the police see the world. It's a, it's a very specific phenomenon. And th this is something that I've been uh, writing a lot about recently. This is, this is like where I'm at in my book right now is that political conflict is just such a bizarre, it, it's such an inarticulably more psychotic phenomenon than people ever usually really seem to realize wherein various factions, various opposed factions are engaging one another on the assumption that they're, they're modeling their opponents based on themselves, right? They, they, what, what we do as humans is we ask, what is the nature of humanity? And then, to a degree we are almost entirely unaware of most of the time, we answer that question by introspection. We answer that question by assessing our own nature and then projecting it onto everybody else, right? And so in conflicts between police and protesters, you know, especially like more sort of like liberal nonviolent types, you see this. Uh, you see this bidirectionally. You see that the the person who really believes that standing around with a sign in front of somebody's office or letting the police beat you up with sufficient forbearance and dignity will like change people's minds because they're assuming that everybody is more like them than they are. And then likewise, the police are assuming that everybody's more like them than they are, which is why they see the world as such a dangerous place full of monsters. But it's also why it is so hard. Anybody who's like been involved in many protests knows this dynamic. It is so hard to convince the police that nobody's in charge. It's also why it's, it can be really hard. Like just to give one last example, like Vladimir Putin really believes the conspiracy theories that all protests that break out in Russia or in some Russia, you know, allied country or whatever, um, are like non-organic. Uh, sort of like ops by Western intelligence agencies and whatnot. And it's not like Western intelligence agencies and whoever else don't throw money at protest movements, but he literally can't conceive of people just doing something like that for these like exalted principles like, demo you know, for the very reasons that they actually profess, you know, um, it, it, which is just like sheer projection. It's like, of course, he, you know, he's the guy who presides over. Uh, so, is, you know, so are U.S. intelligence agencies. Don't get me wrong, but like, you know, who presides over like the creation of fake Black Lives Matter groups on Facebook and like, you know, fake protests and whatever else. And um, and he just like can't comprehend that sometimes a protest is real, right? And so. 
the police just did this thing where they they assumed somebody was in charge and then be and this just really reduces to sheer stupidity and then they assumed that the people who were in charge were this isn't really self-referentiality it's it's just being fucking dumb you know they they assumed that the people who were in charge were just like the people they saw the, the most often <laughs> so that's you know so i i found the tiger swan documents really fascinating because it showed that while they were watching they never really understood what was happening they never they never understood the actual dynamics that were occurring in camp the political dynamics the tensions between the different factions they never really grasped it and you know the, this is like this perennial thing this is also true I mean, intelligence agencies are like this, right? Like the CIA is professionally wrong about everything. You know, these are the people who said that Iraqis would greet us as liberators and all that. It's um so that's that's strategic thesis number 2 is that assume they are watching but also assume that they don't understand what they're looking at. Okay, so God, you can hear you can hear the strain in my voice, I, I imagine. But that's it's appropriate because, you know, some of what I'm trying to present in this episode is this sort of like just keep fighting even when it hurts real bad kinda kinda ethic. So I guess it's only natural I should do it while it's like pretty difficult to even speak. But so okay. There's all that. Now let's let's talk kind of specifically about some pipeline construction stuff, some logistics. Um, I can't comment too heavily on the earlier phases. I got there in, I guess, like sort of late August, I, sometime in August, and in people had been camping since early spring, but confrontations had really started within the last few weeks to a month before I got there and they were centered around so um, the camps were located at the confluence of the Cannonball and Missouri Rivers you know with uh, the actual Standing Rock Sioux Reservation to the east and um, the uh, North of that property, about a mile, was this ranch under some other ownership um, called Cannonball Ranch, and that was the actual root of the pipeline. So let me actually elaborate a little more spatially. So there's a north-south highway, North Dakota State Highway 1806, that ran um, west of the Cannonball River and the Missouri up into Mandan and Bismarck, North Dakota, which were just about 60 miles away. Um, And then a connecting road that ran east-west to another highway, Highway 6, and then, you know, that also went north-south. And then in between those two were this, like, pretty dense network of county roads if you have the addition of James C. Scott's seeing like a state, how certain schemes to improve the human condition have failed, that has like a, a network of roads 
that are like, it's like a perfect, like, you know, grid of 90 degree angles, except every once in a while, the lines sharply detour for, for like a little bit. And that's because they, uh, they try to put the, the, these county roads directly on the lines of longitude. But then because the earth isn't actually a flat surface, right? Because it has a curvature. Every once in a while, the roads have to dogleg to compensate. You know, they'll eventually veer off the lines of longitude and they'll, and they'll like put in this little, you know, this little east-west running um, interval to get it back on. Um, so there's a, you know, pretty dense network of, of county roads in between those two highways. All of this is to the west of those two rivers and to the west of, uh, of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. And um, that was the area of pipeline construction that was most under contention throughout the course of the campaign. And then in particular, that, you know, so the pipeline ran um, northwest to southeast Towards uh, towards the Standing Rock Reservation, but uh, just barely circumventing it, and went through this property, Cannonball Ranch, that was just to the north of the reservation, and so that was you know traditional traditional unceded territory lands, and that's where they were trying to put the pipeline through, and so those first confrontations happened very close to camp. That was like a mile walk or whatever, so people could ride horses or walk or whatever up there. And those initial confrontations had a seemingly fairly, you know, again, I, I can't comment too heavily because I wasn't there, but from watching it on the internet and getting increasingly excited, it seemed like they had a like fairly kind of like semi-spontaneous character. And, uh, you know, people eventually sort of drove, eventually the pipeline company kind of gave up on trying to do that phase of the construction right then and there, especially because they were going to have to do a particularly technically demanding, lengthy, elaborate process of drilling underneath the river for the pipeline, you know, and so they encountered enough opposition that they were kind of like, well, let's just is like do a bunch of the other construction and then when the time comes we'll deal with this more difficult phase um and then if you took those two highways 6 or 1806 north far enough uh you would reach uh interstate 94 major east-west running highway across the northern portion of the country and, uh, you know, Mandan and Bismarck are both on 94. Um, and so here's like a little bit. So when I got there, I didn't know. I, I just actually like finished a course in pipeline operations. Um, but I, I didn't really know anything about pipeline construction. So a lot of my first experiences were of scouting and just trying to figure out how it all worked. And here's how it works, or at least it worked in that case, if uh, you ever find yourself in an actual pipeline fight. Um, there's a few different phases. They'll do survey work, and then the visible indication of that work will just be flagging, right? The, the, the root of the pipeline will be uh, indicated with these little flags. 
Then of course there's trenching, you know, the pipeline runs underground. So they'll come with excavators, various pieces of equipment and uh, dig a big trench. Then there's the laying of the pipes. So, you know, they'll come with trucks full of pipeline segments that are, I, I don't know how long, you know, but, but not huge, like maybe like 15 or 20 feet or something. And they'll, they'll have, they'll be like pretty specific. Uh, some of them are just straight, but there's a lot of times where the course of the pipeline has to bend. So there'll be like these specific pieces with, um, you know, in whatever, whatever the specified angle is. So then they'll lay the pipe. They'll use, they'll use these pieces of the heavy equipment to lower the pipe into the trench. And then along come the welders. The welders weld the pipe together. And then of course they, you know, fill back in the dirt. And that's pretty much that. Unless they're working on some specialized segment. Um, and there's a few of those like pump stations are particularly like critical you know, valuable and more complicated to construct piece of infrastructure and shutdown valves. Um, and something that I was proud of is we didn't really know where stuff was actually coming from, you know, like obviously this is a huge logistical affair that requires like staging a bunch of materials somewhere and then moving them in these like, uh, you know, specifically needed increments to specific places. And so, you know, the way that you find that out is to just go to a work site when people are getting done, when they're wrapping up for the day and follow vehicles back from the work site to wherever they're staging from. Uh, you know, sometimes if you follow just like a guy in a truck or something, he may not be that may not be where he's going. He may be going like to some other camp or a hotel room or something. But um, you know, often they'll transport a bunch of workers in like a bus or something, you know, so follow. It's pretty easy to determine where there's like a statistical concentration of people, like what route the statistical concentration of people and equipment are taking. Uh, you know, any any like heavy equipment you see um, specialized equipment, you know, like follow that and you'll find out where they're staging from. In the case of the Dakota Access Pipeline, it was this uh, yard just west of Mandan, North Dakota. Mandan is west of Bismarck, but they're kind of, they kind of got like a sister city thing going on. I think there's like six miles of distance between them or something. So yeah, so those are like kind of the phases of pipeline construction. And then, so that, that, so that was the staging yard to the northwest. Again, the, the route of the construction went uh, northwest, southeast, towards, you know, towards and through Cannonball Ranch, which was north of where we were camping by about a mile. And then on the other side of the Missouri River, there was another staging yard. I don't know, I guess maybe like 30 or 40 miles to the southeast. So that gives you a sense of the interval, right? You know, like one about 60 miles north, northwest, and one about 40 miles. So, you know, so let's say uh, staging and logistics yard about every 100 miles or so. And that was also where certainly not everybody working on the pipeline was staying, but 
a bunch of people were staying there. And so, you know, these are the infamous, the infamous man camps of fossil fuel infrastructure, construction projects, and a nexus of um, horrible atrocity being committed against indigenous women, you know, a, a nexus of the, the continued disappearance and the murder and the rape of indigenous women, which is epidemic in part because of all of these like giant concentrations of men in these in these camps because there's been because under Obama there was such a massive boom in fossil fuel infrastructure uh, construction it it has slowed down a fair amount but when when fracking came online is right about when Obama took office and he did everything in his power to expedite the construction of those projects. And uh, so, you know, there's just like absolute epidemic of rape and murders of indigenous women during his office as a direct result of his policy decisions. And, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say, like, these are really bad places. Um, and I, I hope I've made clear in the course of this podcast that, like, part of the reason that I spend so much time mapping out humanity's psychological and behavioral and perceptual diversity is to try to find ways to talk to different people, to try to create, to try to create the broadest circle possible in which there is some, some accord, some sense of shared values that can be used as the basis for uh, shared action for survival, you know, um, but there's also some people that you can't necessarily convert. You know, there, there's also some times that you just have to fight. And uh, I would say that a lot of the men in those camps probably do fall into that category. And it's something, something that f has frustrated me to no end. I mean, even in the Earth First movement, even back in the day, you know, but certainly has become a far more all-pervasive logic with the advent of what people like to call climate justice, where there's assumption, there's this assumption that people only do resource extraction jobs out of a rational calculation of economic utility. It's just not true. And those people are as good uh, an indication as any that some of the reason that a lot of people either are directly involved in these industries or have like a huge level of support for them has absolutely nothing to do with a pragmatic calculation about their own survival and well-being and reflects an ideological commitment to what they're doing. And, you know, like an ideological commitment and more stupidly and pathetically, I would just say a sort of like uh, an aesthetic self-stylization, like, you know, it's a it's a device for achieving a certain self-image to be like I'm a guy who works with heavy machinery on real ass you know like industrial projects that tear up the earth and destroy everything right I'm not I'm not some like weak little punk who works who like installs solar panels no I tear up the earth and I put oil pipelines in the ground and, you know, like that really is where those people are coming from. So, so that's that, you know, there's people like that in the world and they are often to be found in those camps. Um, 
But so that's like, I don't know if I actually made this case, but some of this work hadn't been done. I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud of having found those camps. And, you know, I, I just spent, when, when, whenever anybody shows up in a big, like, uprising like this, it's like, the first thing you should do is some dishes, right? So, you know, like, the, the first, like, it's not literally the first thing I did was to start scouting a lot. At first, I just, for at least a few days, you know, <laughs> I, I tried to just, like, help out and, and just, like, be useful for the day-to-day functioning of the camp. But um, at a certain point, uh, that that became my, like, my particular sort of obsessive journey. It was just a whole lot of scouting. And, and, and I'm fairly proud of... Um, of having like gotten a really extensive grasp of the different stages. So all those stages that I just described, you know, like surveying, trenching, laying pipe, welding pipe, in between the Mandan staging yard and Cannonball Ranch, one could find all of those stages and in no particular sequence, you know. And um, so I, I was like pretty proud to like be able to figure out the stage of construction of pretty much the whole pipeline route through that sort of like crucial, you know, what I guess just like what I'd characterize as like striking distance from camp and, um, and to have found that yard, that staging yard. Um, and as this effort grew and as we started doing actions further and further away from camp, that really became, it really required a, like a pretty dedicated infrastructure and a fairly dedicated crew. And in any uprising situation, you'll find, and, and this is so funny because, you know, if you're just on the internet, you'll hear these endless debates about like, oh yeah, well, in your like post-revolutionary society, who, you know, like, how are you going to deliver the mail or just whatever it is? And what's really true is that people actually do voluntarily and rapidly self-select into different necessary logistical roles. There are, there are some people who just feel like some particular thing is their problem, you know. Some people just are, you know, they just feel like they should be medics. And some people just really like to do a lot of cooking or whatever. I, I like to do, that's, that's my favorite. Other than the fighting, I really like to do the cooking, you know. That's, that's really like... Uh, a thing that gives me that's like feels like my problem and and I accept that right it's not it's not necessarily everybody's problem but uprisings are actually these amazing case studies in how if we lived in a more voluntary form of society people like really would step up to fill all these different roles and we could have a great deal of social complexity that wasn't predicated on coercion. It wasn't that wasn't predicated on everybody on everything already being owned and there being no way to access resources except to, you know, accept a specialized role into some task that otherwise nobody would want to do or whatever. And so some people really found it to be their problem to figure out, you know, to scout, to fi- to figure out what was happening and to provide like reliable, extensive, robust information to people who are trying to plan actions. And as the effort grew, that became like a pretty, I don't know, like a pretty like serious endeavor. And, you know, like 
So, you know, the, like, like one thing that a major undertaking such as the resistance at Standing Rock implies is like a military tent full of like maps and night vision goggles, right? And so that strategic thesis number three is that just like we can't entirely eschew violence if our opponents are going to use it, we, you know, like we basically need to have some level of symmetry in terms of every like tactic or every functional role, every specialization, every, you know, just every like resource. And there really is a need for something that is pretty akin to an intelligence service. And there are some people who are just the kind of freaks who need to like crawl around in cornfields evading the surveillance drones and, you know, looking through spotting scopes and like, there's just, you know, and an intelligence service that runs the whole gamut. Like I, you know, I did that episode, the wilderness of mirrors way back when about this also, like it both needs to gather intelligence, but also like to, you know, to sow discord and division among our opponents, just like they try to sow discord and division among us and to, you know, like engage in information warfare and, and all that stuff. So yeah, that, that strategic thesis number three is that a revolution needs something akin to an intelligence service. But for all that scouting, we did find ourselves in this kind of bizarre situation where, you know, there's thousands of people at this camp. And if the police had tried, or well, so if construction workers had tried to you know, do anything to build the pipeline up at the Cannonball Ranch a mile north of camp, or if police or DAPL security had actually like intruded into camp and tried to evict people, holy war, you know, like, like people would have resisted thousands strong. But the pipeline construction that was happening like 10 miles away, you know, because they had retreated from Cannonball Ranch, uh, it was like pipeline construction was happening just a few miles away. And that wasn't really here. Here's, here's what I said in the, the, the it's going down piece. Um, the late August to mid October phase of disrupting pipeline work away from camp the phase that started straight out of the Earth First playbook and very quickly progressed into another vision entirely was significantly hampered by the lack of engagement mechanisms. The bizarre reality was that police or DAPL intrusion into camp would have incited a holy war thousand strong, but pipeline construction 10 miles away was difficult to get a couple dozen people to. And so that was like kind of this first, I don't know, big barrier that had more to do with like developing organizational mechanisms of some kind uh, more than anything else. And that, that was really hard. Um, and so it, it happened, but it happened slowly. And, and then this becomes a key point that I'll, I'll return to a few times is that uh, there, there becomes this real question about the speed of the evolution of both tactics and strategy, um, and, but also like the underlying organizational capacity and just the kind of like psychosocial, spiritual commitment to the struggle. Um, and at a certain point, you know, it's like, 
I feel like we lost the co-evolutionary arms race at a certain point that we just didn't do, we didn't develop our capacities quite quickly enough to adapt as the terrain changed over and over again, as it inevitably will in any situation like this. Um, so I, I feel like that clock essentially started this this process of like evolutionary you know this co-evolutionary process of like strategic and tactical development and underlying organizational development started kind of like when we did our first action away from camp and i am i'm gonna i'm not i'm not gonna do a good job it's it's not gonna work but i'm gonna try to like tell a little bit of the story of this action as a way to convey sort of what I was saying earlier that, you know, like I can talk all I want about like staging yards and stages of pipeline construction, but the reason that I have anything to talk about is because something much bigger was happening here. So the first action that happened away from camp that disrupted pipeline construction happened where the uh, pipeline route crossed North Dakota State Highway 1806, which is, you know, was right on the highway that the camp was right on, but, you know, to the north of it. Um, and my friend and I were the first ones there. And so we, you know, we had to drive up 1806 North earlier than everybody else. And it was before dawn, um, you know, I don't know, like five in the morning or something. And I have never seen a celestial, I've never seen anything in the sky like this. But on three horizons, not to the south, but to the west, the north, and the east, there was red lightning that filled the whole sky for like the whole time we were driving like the sky was just alive there was thunder and there was deep red war-like lightning that just happened over and over and over and over again and, and both of us were struck with such a sense of awe, you know, we, we felt so unequivocal that we were entering a phase of a battle that was unlike anything that we had experienced in our lives of fighting resource extraction. And so we got there, you know, we saw that construction was in fact active or about to start. And we, you know, told people it was, it was a good situation to show up in and shut it down. Two people locked themselves to uh, some earth-moving equipment. One of those people got extracted really quick. Uh, and the other person, I, I don't know, I, you know, like I've read sabotage manuals and stuff. I, I suppose I should know like the parts of a bulldozer. I don't. Uh, so I don't know what to call it, but the the second person uh, locked himself to kind of like 
the shaft that contains the actual bucket that you know would like tear into and uh, move earth um, and he was standing up doing it and uh, so you know some police got up there with him and tried to cut him out of it and I have I used to be so cynical about lockdowns. Like when I was feeling really weary and defeated and exhausted and people asked me what I what I did, I'd be like, oh, I just kind of travel around the country locking people to things, you know. You name it, I'll lock somebody to it, like a fucking gate, a train, a truck, you know, just whatever. Like I just lock people to things. I, it just felt like... it. I've seen some really inspiring lockdowns over the course of the whole like long life I've lived, but you know, like it, it gets really played out after a while. And part of me, you know, because I do come from this framework of being like, this is supposed to be a stage in an evolutionary sequence. I so often would find myself just like, I cannot believe just thinking like, I cannot believe that I am still locking people to things like 20 some years <laughs> later, you know, like, like 20 some years after I first started seeing it and doing it in the nineties. Um, but this was just so different. And, uh, they, they, you know, they were trying to use like hacksaws and stuff to, to get him out, but he wouldn't be immobilized so they couldn't really cut like they would try to immobilize his arms and he would either like raise them or lower them on the shaft and it turned into this struggle that I just I mean again like I don't know how to articulate it but like every time it seemed like the police like had him restrained and there was just no way that he could struggle free it's like all the singing and the drumming that was happening would like get louder you know, and he would just break free. And it was like one of those, like if you're a sucker for performances, there's that those times when the exchange of energy between people watching something and people doing something just becomes so intense that it's like there's no audience and there is no performer, you know, and it felt like that. It felt like sometimes he needed our energy and we would, you know, and the singing and the drumming would just get so intense and then sometimes we needed him and he would just miraculously fight his way out. And like, that's cool or whatever. Like, I, I know what I'm saying is like, oh, that's like, that's like a cool way to stop a bulldozer for a while. But I, I, you know, like, I'll just say it, even though I don't think I'm doing a good job of like really conveying it, but it felt, it felt really mythical. A lot of people and, and like, and like, what would you do? How would you really process it if you especially coming from like a culture like we come from that just has that's just so adrift you know where like where nothing is sacred and we have no framework for for witnessing something holy you know so like like the the people cuz again you know like ultimately I just like kind of did spend a lot of my time with the other sort of like anarcho direct action, you know, like with other like white folks who were at Red Warrior, you know, 
like we were definitely somewhat of a click and you know the the thing the terminology that that developed for for the guy who did that like people just called him indigenous jesus you know they were they were like this was like some it, it was just it was completely beyond anybody's capacity to like really process or, or and so it, it you know like what do you do if you see something mythical other than just say kind of like oh yeah and then there was that crazy like mythical thing that happened in the glib fashion that we talk about everything because we don't know how to be <laughs> but it was amazing it was it was completely amazing and uh so yeah so that's that's the probably the one and only story I'll tr I'll try to tell um but at that point, at that point, I would say that the clock started, right? And that they understood that they needed, that the cops understood that they needed to start throwing new, because we, we successfully just shut down construction for the day in that area at that point in time. And then the next one we did was so much bigger and crazier that was the one if you followed it or you know or if you were there that was the one that the that Jill Stein the green <laughs> 2016 uh green party presidential candidate showed up at and spray painted I'm Jill Stein and I approved this message on a bulldozer like like some some land defender kids kind of like goaded her into it they were like oh you support us like everybody was tagging the bulldozers you know and and they were like We'll tag a bulldozer, and Jill Stein was like, "Yeah, okay, you know." But but it was like it just like felt way bigger and crazier. And at that point, they abandoned construction for like it's not like they just left that site; they left every construction site uh, all the way up to Mandan, all the way up to the interstate. So you know like more than 60 miles because it's not it wasn't a straight northwest shot because it ran northwest southeast it was you know i don't know whatever the hypotenuse of that triangle is whatever um <clears throat> that has 60 miles as one side and whatever the east-west distance is is the other side those two distances squared for for that distance they uh they just like abandoned every construction site. And while that action was still happening, my friend and I just drove all these areas we'd been scouting and just saw abandoned construction site after abandoned construction site. And it felt that's that moment, you know, that's that moment that makes it so hard to come back to, to come back to this society we live in and try to hustle up enough money to like get a room somewhere and like try to take comfort in the the stupid little pleasures that they offer you in exchange for servitude uh to you know to a system that's destroying everything it's like it really just kind of felt like anything was possible um and it became clear to me that after that you know that pretty soon the police tactics were going to significantly escalate. And so the next action that we did, you know, so then because we had shut down all that construction, we started going north of the highway. And that that's when 
the first like mass arrest happened they they had been arrested pe- arresting people who were locking themselves to equipment um and you know like maybe a few people who really got in their way or who they particularly didn't like or whatever but in that one they they came at us from both directions with like uh surveillance overflights you know assault rifles out a huge mass of cops for the first time and just arrested everybody on site so it was like you know depends on your definition of a mass arrest i, I think it was like 25 people or something that was the first time i went to jail there um but so you could see right how how the tactics were evolving and uh how it, there was this question of speed this question of how to stay one step ahead of the motherfuckers okay so you know i'll talk about how i think that the organizational dynamics could have gone a little differently and how that would have allowed for a speed of tactical and strategic evolution that would have allowed us to outpace the cops and not get to the point that we eventually did where there were just kind of no more options you know like the last few months at standing rock there wasn't any real like significant i don't know like disruption of the construction or you know like it really was just like the camp itself at a certain point um and so there needed to be engagement mechanisms what i talked about a lot in the it's going down piece is how people like you know i use the phrase us because i was because it's going down in such a like you know explicitly like anarchist you know veteran of street conflict oriented uh media outlet that you know is like people like us tend to not want to be movement managers we want to see people develop their own agency And so, you know, we play these helping roles. We, you know, we we aid in a bet, but we want people to develop their own like sense of strategy um and their own tactics and everything. But that in doing so, kind of just like how like that's a really nice principle, but so is non-violence. It's just that it doesn't work. We actually leave a lot of power just sort of laying around for liberal movement managers that we detest. to take over the dynamics um and how trainings in particular were something that I saw that could have uh well first of all just generated more actions um because that's a great way to get people in in these kind of scenarios you know like you know a fight against resource extraction um where you kind of need like specific where it's not just like a mass doing something without any specific rules every time but like you kind of need like little affinity groups with like a specific plan uh a training is a great way to just develop those among people who don't have a ton of experience right you, like a lot of us tend to like direct action training civil disobedience training tends to be something favored more by liberal types who um are more mostly emphasizing not letting things get out of control there's not really any actual skills that they teach 
right? This piece where it's going down was called Teaching Revolution, What Role for Direct Action Training. And it's like these trainings often don't actually teach any particular skills. They just give people a sense of social cohesion. They give people a sense that there's some kind of like shared understanding of like a vague protocol or something. And, you know, in a majority of cases, they really exist to make sure that people don't do things that movement managers feel are unsightly, like engage in violence or whatever. Uh, but how we actually really would have benefited so strongly from doing trainings because we, A, would have generated more actions, but B, and perhaps more importantly, we would have generated like tactically functional semi-autonomous affinity groups. That's, that's like the format, right, is you do the training and people who already kind of know each other tend to come together to these things and then you try to create groups out of them. You try to give people some sense of strategic and tactical agency. But then at the end, you're like, who wants to form a group? And, you know, and that if we had done more of that, then when we reached the kind of paralysis phase of Standing Rock, we would have had all these options that we just didn't have. And I'll, I'll explain what, what, what I think those options were later. But um, I'd just like to read from the It's Going Down piece a bit. Oh, yeah. And so I would just say, like, uh, I, I, uh, I divided in an uprising situation, I tend to see three sort of like major factions. There's like the veteran, the veteran like conflict nomad types, you know, the anarchists and whoever else, the direct action people. There's the movement managers, the liberals who are trying to like constrain what happens. And then there's the vast undifferentiated grassroots that, you know, consists of people who think all kinds of things and have all kinds of like worldviews and persuasions and tendencies and, uh, you know, like behaviors that they're prone to, but who don't have any real definitive sort of like agenda about like what constitutes efficacious political action or what's too much or too little escalation, right? Um, you know, and so, so what I said in this piece is the vast majority of bodies on the ground there did not come with experience of sustained conflict, political strategy, or group decisions. A direct action click in the form of Red Warrior Camp formed quickly, but was a closed camp with its own security and no explicit mechanism for public engagement, for instance, trainings or presentations of any sort, giving it an aura of inaccessibility. The tribal government and other folks more allied with institutional power had predictable issues with direct action. And so controversies around masking up, getting arrested, and being respectable, essentially identical to controversies one would find in a non-indigenous political setting, raged throughout the camps. This created a situation wherein thousands of people had traveled thousands of miles to resist a pipeline, only to find that the most visible figures didn't want anyone to do any active resisting if it could be viewed as illegal. Meanwhile, those seeking heightened conflict had a security perimeter and weren't inviting anyone over for dinner. For a huge variety of reasons, let's acknowledge that the incredible workload and exhaustion were also chief among them. The result was that training, the only mechanism by which people could engage in the physical elements of the struggle 
were relegated to the Indigenous People's Power Project, a Greenpeace spinoff that simply didn't have the capacity to generate tactically relevant actions and presented no masking up as a core principle. Red Warrior could only present its political perspective in ad hoc, often defensive conversations, rather than coherently and on its own terms. And so that strategic thesis number, what are we at, four, right, is that in between moments of uprising, there's this work of laying groundwork for when they happen. Um, and then when they happen, there is actually a real need for the more radical elements to be able to do things that are as accessible, coherent, and presented on their own terms as the liberals are doing, and that we often fail at that. But that if that had happened, uh, we could have evolved quickly enough to keep outsmarting the police. I don't know what the concise way to phrase that is. In my notes, it's just strategic thesis number four, lay groundwork, do trainings. Okay, I am really starting to suffer from a lack of endurance. I feel like this might end up having the feel of one of those television series that goes on and on, developing all this tension and all these like subplots you think are eventually going to integrate into something greater than the sum of their parts. And then there's like the, oh, season fucking seven got canceled, so we're just going to hastily wrap it up sort of feeling. Let's see how we do. Um, so yeah, like, you know, laying groundwork in between the big moments of social rupture. I do not want to, I do not want to understate how frustrating that is. Uh, after I wrote that, it's going down piece about training and, you know, just doing exactly that. I spent like six months just kind of traveling around the Pacific Northwest, giving trainings to all the groups that, uh, formed in the wake of the Trump election, you know, like everybody started a group, you know, nurses for against Trump or whatever, you know, like there was like a, an ups, a, a big, big groundswell in new organizations and groups. And, uh, I don't know, it was an interesting lesson, but it was mostly frustrating. It culminated for me in this big camp. And I think that was like, that really brought home this lesson that when people are just sort of like wrapped up in their normal lives and you're trying to like teach them to, or convince them to do some politics that are like some effective politics or whatever, you really only get so far in that when you're trying to make a revolution or inculcate in people a, a political tendency or whatever, you're really you're advocating for a wholesale state of being, you know? So I felt like I was able to do that with the camp itself because that was me and my, uh, my compatriots kind of setting the terms and being like, this is the experiential reality. That's, that's why novels have so often been really potent sources of political um, you know, been like potent origin points for political movements, right? Like famously so many socialist revolutionaries in the sort of like 
early 20th century era decided to become revolutionaries by reading uh what's his name Rachmedidev or whatever but you know that that book uh that that one novel uh what is to be done i guess it's called same same as that lenin pamphlet or how uh earth first you know basically really like it's it's unclear like what form it would have taken or if it would have taken any form without Edward Abbey's The Monkey Wrench Gang, right? Because that's the actual psychosocial process that gets people to kind of like do things in a certain way and, and give up on their old lives and co- commit to and, and identify completely with a, a political project is, you know, is they read about a protagonist or a group of protagonists who they kind of want to, you know, and then they mentally model being like that. And they, and they think, yes, that is the state of being that I would like to inhabit. Uh, so, you know, I just, I just I do want to acknowledge it's, it's not easy, but, but I think that there's, there's a way to do it. And, and the way to do it is to really think about a deeper level of psychosocial need rather than hammering home like this would be politically effective. Um, and so um, I left Standing Rock after, I guess it was 30 days the first time. So I don't have a lot to say about some stuff that happened there and that I, think I was gone for 15 days. And when I came back, it was kind of the convoy phase so, you know, we were still doing actions far away from camp, uh, but it was getting harder and harder to get to them. They were just like patrolling. There were more and more roadblocks and they always moved them. So that network of county roads that I had described that we used to drive so freely and be able to just kind of like use to get to actions had like these like rolling roadblocks on them. And it was becoming harder and harder. So these uh, this paradigm developed of sending out multiple major convoys, only one of which was like actually going to get to a work site and the rest of which were decoys, stuff like that. Um, and then there was this. So, OK, so there was. This thing, and now I'm being atemporal, this happened way back in August or September, but by now I'm talking about like, you know, October, I guess, uh, where they, they had tried to come back right to camp, like right to the Cannonball Ranch rather, at one point, and uh, people had chased them away, and then it was that if you followed it, it was the famous incident that Amy Goodman covered in Democracy Now! where like the unlicensed security contractors sicked dogs on people. People had like dog bites. Um, but after that, there was like this mini encampment that stayed right there on the highway, like right at the entrance to Cannonball Ranch, so like a mile from the main camp. And it became clear to a lot of us at Red Warrior that that was really the strategic nexus and that we 
you know, that eventually they were going to just hyper-militarize construction right there, that they were going to come with the barbed wire and the floodlights and the fucking armored vehicles and all the rest and just do their construction, and we would be stuck like a mile south. And that we actually had to get up on the highway and uh, on Cannonball Ranch and, and, like, create a mass encampment. And so this is, again, where, like, this thing where there was, like, no real coordinating mechanism, like, no way things could happen spontaneously. And, you, you know, a relatively small group could plan an action and then kind of announce it camp-wide, and a lot of people would show up. There was no way to engender, like, a decision-making process of the variety, like, let's all go a mile north and, and mass encamp there, because that's what's actually strategic. And, you know, and it was weird. It was like the kids who held it down had this real insularity and this kind of, I guess, you know, like this kind of like standoffish quality, you know, like they very much developed an identity around being the like couple dozen people who camped on the highway. So we would go up there and try to talk to them about ways to create a mass encampment and they just would sort of like treat us with suspicion and like be real vague and dismissive real weird situation you know um and so that was like this perennial frustration that was like this incessant discussion that we were having it's like how do we get people onto the road that is the next phase and we will lose the opportunity and then the final sort of like action away from camp within that network of county roads uh, between 1806 and 6 uh, finally happened. Um, and at this point, it was like epic difficulty. We, it, instead of a convoy, we walked to the site. The people who did the scouting had to like, I mean, it was like people got shot at you know, like, spent nights hiding out places. I mean, it was nuts, you know, like this this hyper-elaborate operation to get people to a construction site to lock down. And then the rest of us, uh, like, tried to march to the site. We never reached them. We encountered yet another escalation of police both times that there is a big escalation like this, the first mass arrest where they were, you know, I don't know, mass, but like where they arrested like 25 of us. And then this time where they arrested like 150 of us or something crazy. It was really easy to see coming. In both cases, I was like, okay, this is where they will have switched it up. And, you know, we're just kind of walking into this big arrest situation. And Sure enough, so they arrested a bunch of us, and it was pretty brutal. You know, it was the first time, it was the first time that it really seemed like people might die. There was a lot of really nervous motherfuckers pointing guns and like visibly, you know, like pointing assault rifles at us and like visibly shaking. Um, but it also engendered this sort of like spontaneous collective rage that I didn't get to see because I was in jail for a few days. But um, when I got out of jail, you know, the, the person who picked us up was like, did you hear? And I was like, what? And, the, you know, there's a mass encampment on the highway, like hundreds and hundreds of people 
are now directly blockading the pipeline route. It has finally occurred. And um, so that felt good. Um, and right at this time, I noticed a big... I noticed a big shift in kind of like the mental framework that people were in. And I'd, I'd characterize it in two ways. First of all, I noticed that a lot of people, a lot of like just like the grassroots indigenous folks who had shown up from wherever, um, started like really talking about this as a way of life. They were like, you know, and when this is over, I'm just going somewhere else where this is happening. And like, this is what we do now. And also, and I think I have talked about this before on this podcast, but like, you know, people really just started talking explicitly because, again, it, this was when it was starting to feel like somebody was probably going to die or maybe like quite a few people were going to die. And people were really talking about it, you know, and they, and they were really saying that it was OK. And uh, you've probably heard that phrase, Hokahe, Lakota, it's a good day to die, you know. That started getting said a lot, and people meant it. And um, that's not something that I had ever experienced before. And it felt, I don't know, it just, it, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it, it felt so important. It feels to me like you really can't, you can't have a revolutionary process if literally nobody is willing to die you know, and, and I was like, that would have been okay. That just like, that just like, that's, that's strategic thesis number five is that it's okay to die. It's going to happen to you whether you're okay with it or not. Right. You were born into a universe that nobody knows the origin of. And the only fact we're absolutely certain of is our unconsciousness. And someday you're going to be dead. You're going to be dead whether you confront that truth with open eyes and an open heart and a sense of purpose or, you know, and I say this as somebody who's undergone profound medical misery or if you hide from it for as long as possible and you die with tubes coming out of your body and sores from having to lay in a bed forever. I mean, I think if you're like relatively young, the way that, you know, the trajectory of collapse we're on actually probably does preclude that. But, um, you know, like, I don't think a lot of us are necessarily going to like who yeah, I'm 40. I'm 43. I don't think a lot of us are necessarily going to live to be like 85 or anything. But I'll tell you, as somebody who has experienced like profound medical misery, I Dying, I've always wanted to die in battle since I was a kid, you know. I've always thought it sounded better than dying in bed. And in some ways, it's kind of the brave option. <laughs> right, you see what I'm going to say here? But I, 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 also, it's like the option, like, with the less, the less suffering. It's, you know, like, like feeling exultant and full of purpose and brave. I mean it wears you down. It wears you down. I, I don't, it, I don't, I don't think that it's like a, a better or easier. It's like, it's like everything in life. If you hide from a source of pain, that pain controls you. And if you confront the pain or the adversity or the terror or whatever it is, 
then you you can master it. And um, we live in this culture where all, so many people have no idea what they would die for. And it's almost like it gets really easy to just assume that's kind of like, you know, like that's the big lesson of so much social sciences or whatever, right? Is like whatever we're accustomed to, we end up mistaking for like an intrinsic aspect of the human condition. Um, and, and I think that's one of those where it, it seems, I think it might seem to some people like I'm saying something kind of crazy, but like, I mean, really think about it. Like, I mean, like think about World War One, right? Like World War One was these like sta- like this static trench warfare. Like there would be these positions, and people would die in, in like the thousands over these like bomb crater marked muddy fields that were just strewn with corpses, and you know, and like they would go over, they would go over the you know the wall of the trench to like almost certain death for for what exactly like it's it's part of it's well within human psychological capacities to to die knowingly you know and in a lot of cases people end up doing it for really stupid reasons and the annihilation of everything seems like a great reason to be willing to die and yeah i I just i don't think i don't think that we can have a revolutionary process unless people get there and my my impression is that even though i I had to sit most of it out because of my health uh that 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 was also something that kind of happened in 2020 it seemed like a lot of people sort of came to terms with you know with the fact that this is a war and some people are going to die um but so that you know that feels like again this is like i mentioned that thing about optimal risk and difficulty that's not necessarily a place where a revolutionary process starts that's not something that i had been hearing like a month before but in the right trajectory, it's it's a place that people can get, I think even some people who really don't think they can get there. And uh, I think it's really important. So we took the road. And uh, around this time and for a little while before, around the time of the taking the road and a little while before, and... Uh, This is, I guess I didn't, I I guess I didn't include this as one of my official strategic theses. I should have. Let's say this is an official strategic thesis. There's a time to concentrate and a time to disperse. Um, So I guess that's, uh, that's thesis number six, yeah? Um, It kind of had become clear to me that we really were rapidly losing our options for disrupting pipeline construction in the area that we had been. And to me, you know, but at this point, it's also crucial to note there was something like 450 police, roughly, uh, from, oh, I forget, and somewhere in one of my, in one of the pieces I wrote, I had the exact numbers. 
Um, but, you know, a huge number, like dozens of jurisdictions, many states. And so, you know, you can make this obvious point that there, there weren't enough police in like the broader region to handle the thousands of us that there were doing actions all over the place. And to me, we had kind of reached this point where it was time to stop focusing quite so much on stopping the Dakota Access Pipeline and to begin, you know, to like, like fight, you know, to stop focusing on fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline and, and really just kind of start focusing on fighting the United States of America. And um, I think that this is where I would say that uh, we kind of lost that our, our co-evolutionary process with the police in terms of tactics, strategy, and organization wasn't quite fast enough. It's like we just kind of, when it got to the point where that was like really the big option, we just still kind of weren't there. We just didn't have a, a real means for like camp-wide meetings to coordinate affinity groups. And we just didn't even really have that many like functional affinity groups. And so, you know, again, I think if we had like done more trainings and, and laid more groundwork, yeah, both before the uprising actually began, but then just also like once it started, that we could have like had a very serious conversation about, you know, like Interstate 94 was right there and that could have been blockaded. I mean, it was 60 miles north. There is also an east-west running train line, you know, that transported a bunch of the same Bakken crude oil that the pipeline would have transported and that could have been blockaded. Uh, as I've been pretty open about in the past, I uh, helped organize the shutdown of all the major pipelines carrying tar sands from Canada into the United States while, uh, that happened while Standing Rock happened and officially was a Standing Rock solidarity action, although admittedly we started planning it before Standing Rock. Um, but you can imagine, right? Like, we had generated this, like, we, we were almost there. Like, you could, you could always you could talk about this at any point, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if everybody just, like, shut down every highway and railroad and pipeline? But usually there's not, there's neither the organization and numbers nor the kind of, like, commitment, the, the like, spiritual commitment to the struggle but we really had like almost like i mean we were like there in terms of the commitment and we were almost there in terms of the organizing is like really actually not that crazy to start talking about peeling off from the main camp and doing these roving actions and just sort of like spreading further and further out um and you know and of course there were solidarity actions in other cities and whatnot that like achieved some semblance of that purpose. But again, there was just like a unique level of momentum, uh, numbers, dedication, and just sort of like tactical energy right there. And if we had had the means to disperse it, I, I think we could have very made, quickly made the point, like you can guard a pipeline route, but you can't guard North Dakota, you know? And I think that that would have been where that process could have gone to really tend towards 
a broader revolutionary effort, a fight against the whole power structure itself. Um, and I do think people would have died. I really do think people would have died if we had done that. But again, I think we were ready for that. Um, and you can imagine like, so those actions, those pipeline shutdown actions that I spent so much time on, you know, those, those were like kind of the classic, like direct action format, like a couple people showed up, some of them live streamed, made calls and stuff like that, were legal observers. And then like one person, or in one case, two people would actually like, shut down the pipeline valves but where we were at at camp is like we could have gotten like hundreds of people to go to one of those sites we could have like shut down a pipeline valve and then nobody had to like stay in the enclosure and be like i'm the guy who did it who you should arrest but we could have surrounded the thing and tried to hold it right you know like i mean there was like some real tactical possibility like imagine that happening while there's also a massive rail blockade and so these 430 cops have to decide you know maybe maybe a road and a rail blockade happening at the same time because they were so close together so these 430 and maybe some of those aren't static maybe it's like convoys moving to different places on the highway and the rail so those 430 cops have to divide themselves up between the pipeline, between like the people who are like surrounding the shutdown valve somewhere of another existing pipeline, say like Keystone XL or something, and you know, and the people who are blockading the trains and the highways. I mean, we were seriously almost there. We just needed to be a little more organized, a little faster. But once we didn't do that, we, you know, we took the road. And then again, I could only be, for, for reasons having to do with my organizing elsewhere, I had to leave Standing Rock after the second time after only 15 days. So cumulatively, I only spent 45 days there, which is really disorienting to think about considering the huge significance it retains in my psyche and it being kind of like the highlight of my, you know, quote unquote, career as a revolutionary. Uh, and so I was there until the day before we, <laughs> we lost the road, which I would say was the craziest day that ever happened at Standing Rock. Like that was buck wild. Uh, again, watch Black Snake kill us. But that's like, that, you know, like we're way beyond like the normal sort of like this is direct action. Somebody locked themselves to something paradigm at this point. And uh, after we lost the road and we weren't able to do the big dispersed thing, um, things got pretty static, right? There was like a huge number of confrontations where people just sort of like marched north on 1806 and tried to take back the pipeline route. But it was, like we knew it would be now, like floodlights, razor wire, armored vehicles, masses of robot-looking, like, you know, 
orc looking cops, you know, it just like turned out not to be possible. There was one point where they officially asked to retreat. Um, so this is something that we got from the papers that The Intercept published. So we, you know, we know we almost defeated them. I think we probably could have if the vets had been allowed to do their thing. Around that time, a bunch of like vets showed up and they were ready to like really throw down. And that's when the kind of like same liberal politics that destroys everything showed up. So that's the other way that we lost at that point. Like we hadn't quite developed the organization, uh, but also like the, you know, the tribal council, the people within the power structure who were indigenous but allied with more allied with the resource extractive economy, you know, the people who benefit from it the most, started really exerting influence and they managed to kind of like convince the vets to stand down. Uh, this is always this, this perennial thing. Uh, you know, one of the huge purposes of this podcast is always to point out uh, the that I, I really feel like almost all political theories and approaches, whether it's like high theory or concrete, like on the ground political action, really tend to underestimate the diversity of humanity, the perceptual and behavioral diversity of humanity, and to group people according to like horribly, crudely reductionist, massively overgeneralized categories like all working class people, all black people, whatever. And so you see this thing where people are like, I'm on the side of indigenous people. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Like, you know, the only time that my resistance efforts really like felt them like really real was there, you know, but I, I can't be on the side of every indigenous person because there's actual differences between them. I'm on the side of the indigenous land defenders. Um, I'm not on the side of the indigenous people who are making money off of resource extraction. I'm not. And I, and I feel like perfectly comfortable saying that. And some people just have so much trouble with that. So they traffic in these bizarre abstractions, you know, like they pretend that people form these cohesive blocks that they don't. And then we can extend this argument, uh, I think like way further out, where it's just like actually the perennial problem of political organizing in general, you know, like one way that it comes up is there's always a certain proportion of people who show up in radical political spaces who are just kind of impossible and awful and just wanna like tear everybody down and engage in incessant critique and, you know, just like, and it's, it's not only that they disrupt the processes that they're part of, but they become a primary association for other people of like what radical politics even is. And so they keep a lot of people away, you know, and, and so like, and then there's just all the like, I don't know, just kind of like the basic realities that even if it's not a matter of somebody being like, horrible and repulsive, you know, people just have different paradigms and different. And so like, like what I'm saying is that a fundamental 
fundamental problem. This is strategic thesis number seven, I guess we're on now, since I added one. Um, a fundamental problem of revolutionary political efforts has always been an inability to draw a sufficiently complex uh, like number of circles and find coherent mechanisms for describing who stands inside and who stands outside of any given circle and the way that those circles overlap and interlock. In fact, because this is you know a Standing Rock episode, let's, uh, let's use Black Elk's vision, since so many people thought we were in the prophecy of Black Elk when we were at Standing Rock. Um, you know, his, his great vision of the world, or I guess the universe, and all the nations within it as a series of interlocking hoops. Um, and, the, you know, this idea that 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 is a way to think about all the different, whether we're talking about politics or just all the other ways that people perceptually and behaviorally vary, we need a way to think of all the different circles that people stand inside and out of in coherent ways to actually like make those circles functional entities where only the people who should be in one are in one, but also to know where they overlap. And, you know, thus there can be coordination between people who stand in, in two, you know, in different circles and we know who stands in both and things like that. Um, and, and that that's, there are so many people who stay home because that isn't the thing that we've managed to achieve. There are so there is so much potential lost because of that. And so you know that that was a case study in that how overgeneralizing about indigenous people ended up being trans like ended up translating into, in this case the vets, but it, it happens all the time in all kinds of different contexts, uh, just basically interpreting indigenous people as in the, you know, the indigenous people in power, right? The, that's the voice of everybody indigenous, just like when things are on fire in the city because the police shot somebody, you know, there's this tiny cadre who often have the most to lose from revolution who suddenly are like the voice of all black people, according to someone, you know? So like, that's that's strategic thesis number seven. We need to we need to create a map of of great complexity of the interlocking hoops of all the different ways of being that people inhabit and how they functionally interrelate and can connect to some greater effort, the hoop of hoops, you know, something greater than the sum of its parts. Um and, you know, so the last thing that I'll kind of say, this is strategic thesis number eight, is that one way that a revolutionary effort will feel is it will feel like becoming a people. And I just don't have any other way to say it. And I don't know how much that means to you. We can talk about it academically, like... Uh, you know, the ethnogenesis series and, and the authors that I cite heavily there, you know, the people like Pierre Clostre and uh, James C. Scott and all the rest of them, Christopher Baum, 
who have noted that ethnogenesis, like the process of becoming a people, is often a political project, right? You know, like I said at the beginning that one of the things that I got out of Standing Rock is just that actually having some kind of connection to some real sense of being a people makes a revolutionary effort totally different and that it seems almost insurmountably difficult to imagine doing in this consumer civilization in which we are all so adrift, but um, that I believe the one and only way that we can transcend that, you know, it's not by like going to retreats where we like try to process it abstractly. It's not by reading the right books. Like, you know, I read all those books that I cited in Ethnogenesis after Standing Rock, but that was something that really that really hit me. Like when people started talking about the next thing and the next thing and how this was the new way of being, you know, it really occurred to me that if we actually did that, at some point we would kind of become a people. Maybe that offends somebody. I don't know. But, you know, I want to say, like, the only way, if you have no connection to a living tradition, i.e. you're not indigenous, you have no, like, you have no circle to return to, per se. I really believe the the one and only way that you can ever maybe sort of hope to confront and transcend that is in the process of fighting and giving yourself completely to that revolutionary effort with that level of commitment that I described where eventually death is on the table, you know? And I I really believe the last thing I'll say, the actual last thing I say is that we're stronger than we know. We, We really are, like... This world we live in has convinced us that we're paralyzed and weak, and we're not. We are, we are products of infinite strength. When you really think about what DNA is and what ancestry means, it's not just true that the people who came before you exhibited great strength or you wouldn't be here. I mean... DNA is a continual, like every generation is a permutation in some sense of the same entity. You are a continuous reformulation of this one entity that has been existing for all these generations. It goes back and back and back, but it's unbroken. You, you are your ancestors. And you really do have the strength in you to destroy the world destroyers. So I'm exhausted. I'm going to go lay down and I'm going to call that an episode. And uh, we will wrap up our scientific revolution series and I will have another fight like an animal 2050 episode relatively soon. You know, I'm, I'm still pretty shaky, but... Uh, having gotten through this recording and, and kind of having a lot of that stuff fairly well prepared, I'm fairly certain that I can uh, I can get stuff out at like a decent clip to compensate for uh, for some of the lost time. And so 
Until that time, friends, great love to you all, and we will talk again soon. Thank <laughs> you.